Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay, a senior editor at Quillette. Quillette is where Freethought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. Hello, everyone. My guest today is the writer and journalist John Colapinto. He is the author of five books, I believe. Yes. Uh, three nonfiction and two fiction books, two novels about the author, which I've read, which is a rollicking tale of plagiarism, and three nonfiction books, The Voice, which I've also read, which is about the human vocal cords and also becoming a neurosurgeon. And it's the third book that we're going to talk about today. It's called As Nature Made Him. And it's the story of David Reimer, who was, after a botched circumcision, severely damaged his penis. He was brought up as a girl. And we're going to be talking about that story in more detail in a second. But I'll begin by reading you a a short passage from the book. It was like brainwashing, he was saying, as he lit the first in an unbroken chain of cigarettes. I'd give just about anything to go to a hypnotist to black out my whole past, because it's torture. What they did to you in the body is sometimes not near as bad as what they did to you in the mind, with a psychological warfare in your head. He was referring to the events that had begun to unfold on an April morning three decades earlier, when, at eight months of age, he lost his entire penis to a botched circumcision. As a result of that irreparable injury, his parents had taken him to see a famed expert in sex research at the renowned Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, where they were convinced to submit their son to a surgical sex change. The process involved clinical castration and other genital surgery when he was a baby, followed by a 12-year program of social, mental and hormonal conditioning to make the transformation take hold in his psyche. The case was reported in the medical literature as an unqualified success, and he became one of the most famous though unnamed, patients in the annals of modern medicine. Thank you. Nicely, nicely read. You should be doing audiobooks. That was awesome. Thank you. I would love to do audiobooks. Maybe you could begin by telling the audience about the story of David Reimer. You know, you, you, in your nice reading there, you know, you encapsulate what the injury was, which was an injury that removed his penis 100%. This was one of the boys who actually at birth was named Bruce. And, you know, when you've got a baby with no penis, um, you're really in trouble because they can't be sort of built. You know, prosthetic penises don't function. They don't work well for all sorts of reasons. So the parents were in this conundrum where they spoke to lots of medical professionals in their hometown of Winnipeg, Canada. Of course, none of them knew what on earth could be done to save this child from what everyone assumed was going to be just a horrifying life. You know, to to imagine being raised as a boy that could, you know, never reveal what was going on down there to a potential lover later on. This is what was always assumed was that a boy without a penis is a boy that might as well be dead, uh, which is certainly something that we could talk about later whether or not that's a, a a wise way to go about thinking about um men or women um 
But in any case, the parents were convinced that this child was doomed. And they eventually were led to John Money, as you read about, um, at Johns Hopkins. And he really was the guru um, of, of all things sexual. But he really started his life studying hermaphrodites, uh, intersexes, as we call them now, children that were born with ambiguous genitalia for whatever hormonal reason uh, or mishap in the womb. And he had decided through working with these children that you could really... Um, that children were born, as he called them as psychosexual blank slates. They really were born with no sexuality whatsoever. And, and if they became masculine boys or feminine girls or even tomboys and effeminate boys, all of that was written into them and onto them by their environment, by their parents, by the culture the ultimate sort of nurture over nature argument. And he claimed to have seen this in intersexes. And he, he then sort of extrapolated that to say that it would apply to developmentally normal children, not born with ambiguous genitalia. He had actually been challenged on this by a young graduate student in Kansas, a man named Diamond. Um, but Diamond was a graduate student that was just swept aside, swept under the rug. Although Diamond did throw down a gauntlet he said to John Money, who was this towering figure, he said rather impudently as a graduate student, you know, we don't have to believe in psychosexual neutrality until because you're dealing with intersexes and God knows what things might have been also made ambiguous in their nervous systems and brains that makes them malleable at birth. But, you know, we're not going to necessarily be able to apply that to developmentally normal children until you can present us with a developmentally normal child that you have successfully turned into the opposite sex than that child was born in and their chromosomal makeup is. Within months, I mean, you know, the coincidences of, in this story are, you know, if a novelist made them up, no one would believe it. Because it was within months of that embarrassing challenge by Diamond, that John Money gets a frantic phone call from Canada, Winnipeg, Canada, uh, Canada, a mother saying, I've, I've got this boy, he's lost his penis 100%. Uh, you know, I'm told it can't be rebuilt. What on earth do I do? And so Money thinks, is, is excited by this. And he, and he says, well, you've got to get your kid down here immediately. We've got to start a program of sex reassignment because the only way to raise this child happily is as a girl. So, you know, the mother's listening to this with some skepticism, but it's interesting that part of Money's program for this sort of psychosexual conditioning that he would do um, was to know everything about the family environment that the kid was going to be raised in, because he needs to know, is there an older brother or sister that the child might model himself after? Could that in some way screw the experiment up? So he says, you know, to her in all innocence, um, Listen, you know, what's the what's the sibling situation? Any siblings? Oh, yes. Uh, yes. He's got a brother. I see. Um, oh, and they're twins. I, I mean, money had to. I'm, I'm just guessing here, but he had to. Everyone stood up. And then he asked her, are they fraternal twins or identical twins? And she was able to tell him identical twins, which meant that they had, you know, the same DNA. They were biological clones of each other. And as in the excerpt you read, that meant he had a matched control for an experiment on this injured boy. So he said, get them down here pronto. And his claim was that you had to do this within 
24 months, I think it was. It was, you know, it was relatively late that he suggested that the malleability, the psychosexual malleability remained. He did say that you eventually reach a point where it, it can't work. But he said, no, you're, we're, we're within the window. Get your kids here. Wasn't it two and a half years, the window that he he thought was the crucial yeah. You read it more recently than I did. Two and a half, that's right. And I think David was maybe at 21 months. I forget what they were at, but it was well within the window. So, you know, the child is brought there. And I mean, I guess one of the chilling things to me is that a very renowned urologist castrated the child. You know, he had a developmentally normal child. There was no precedent for this. Um, so he removed the testicles in order to begin the process of physically turning uh, then Bruce into a girl. She was going to be called Brenda. Because the baby was still an infant, they were saving the larger surgeries, which involved creating a false vagina uh, until her body was closer to full grown, i.e. in her teen years. And that's really a process. I mean, you know, it, it's it's creating a, a essentially a, a birth canal. And that's done by an insertion of a, I have to just say it, a dildo-like, you know, a thing that's placed in there and strapped in there and left in there for a certain number of hours every day so that the body can grow around it and create this canal. All of that becomes relevant later because David starts to have this pressure put on him as a, well, Brenda, as a teenager to have this rather harrowing, not very pleasant procedure done. But I'm jumping ahead too far. Right now, we've got the castration done, a little bit of cosmetic work done on the outside of the body to look sort of like a vulva, um, a center sort of um, groove and so on. And then the mother was told to take Brenda home, dress her in pink and in dresses and give her Barbies to play with. This was all part of Money's theory that as psychosexual blank slates, if we're named a girl, treated as a girl, raised as a girl, we'll become in our minds a girl. And not only just will our gender identity, which I believe was a term that he might have, if not invented, widely popularized, not only we, we develop a gender identity, you know, feel like a girl, our sexual orientation literally would be towards males. Our, our sexual erotic response is actually malleable at birth by parents and scientists. So the mother went home to Winnipeg believing this. Um, there were problems right away. I mean, at two years old, Brenda was tearing the dresses off, didn't want to wear them. Brenda was a uh, tough, strong, to call her a tomboy would be an, you know, an understatement. Just a very physical kid beating up other kids in the schoolyard. I mean, it's one of the great ironies of this whole case that David or Brenda was biologically so very, very masculine. You know, people are born in a spectrum of masculinity to femininity, let's say. David was a dude. It probably made the experiment even harder to make work, but it, it never would have worked. I mean, you know, this kid fought it the whole way. Now, John Money was reporting it as a success in in medical journals, a book that he wrote in, I guess, 1972. He ended up in Time magazine. It was it was very, very good for his career. He branched out from um, sort of gender identity, transsexualism. These were his areas, hermaphroditism. He was very much in kind of the, the transition of sex between male and female. Um, 
I think his first book was called Man, Woman, Boy, Girl, or something. He was, you know, he's very into the, the, the sort of spectrum of sexuality. But then he branched out into all sorts of things like pornography, sadomasochism, pedophilia, all of which he endorsed, um, pretty happily, pretty strongly. It was the early seventies. Um, it was a bit of a free for all in the sexual revolution. But while John Money is becoming this hugely colorful and controversial figure, poor Janet Reimer is struggling with raising this kid that is not adapting to her female persona. Um, in school, the kid is quickly recognized as needing psychological help. She's a various local uh, psychiatrists are brought in. One of her first um, psychiatric workups at the age of six says this child has suicidal ideation. Um, and that's going to be a persistent uh, aspect of Brenda's life. Every, every psychiatrist that saw her after that would say suicide, you know, seriously depressed. Except for one, a psychologist, and that was John Money. John Money reported that it was going smoothly and swimmingly. Things reached ahead when, as they will tend to do in puberty, um, you know, David, and, and one would wonder why, frankly, because he did not have testicles, but uh, so there wasn't what ordinarily happens with a developmentally normal male at puberty is that the testicles give out a huge burst of extra testosterone and they masculinize the body, the muscles get big, the body shoots taller, and you start running, if you're heterosexual, wildly after girls, if you're homosexual after guys, but you know, your sexuality spikes and you're ready to, you're ready to roll. David had no testicles. I don't know what it is, but he, it was still at that time in his life. So there's probably other glands in the body that are, that were giving out some. Yeah. Don't the adrenal glands also secrete androgens? So somehow his body was compensating. Yes. Because suddenly he wanted to be with girls, but he was a girl. Part of the program meant that his parents, by the way, had to never let him know the truth. So he would say, and his voice actually with the adrenal, you know, uh, release of, of androgens, you know, of male hormones, his voice deepened a certain amount at puberty. And he asked his mother about that. And his mother said, oh, no, no, you know, some girls just have deep voices. She mentioned an actress named Marlo Thomas that was famous on American TV at the time that had a deep voice. David remembered that detail. And, um, you know, at every question that he had, you know, she had some kind of response to convince him, no, no, you're, you're a girl. But he was struggling with desire for his fellow females. He was raised in a, a religious home, somewhat religious, a, a Mennonite community. His parents weren't strong or devout, but you know, there was sort of extra layers of prohibition against homosexual behavior, perhaps. I mean, he was certainly appalled at the idea that she was attracted to girls. I just, I'm jumping around in pronouns. It might be hard for people to follow. I will say that at about 15, he, he, he had seen a series of sort of um, psychiatrists up there that were kind of enthralled to John Money. Here's this superstar in the United States directing a local treatment team of psychiatrists, of psychiatrists, sort of small town psychiatrists um, who are in awe of him and eager to believe that he's right. So they're trying 
to not see the experiment as a failure. So they're trying to endorse and promote the female side of Brenda, even though they can see it ain't really happening. But what ends up happening is she gets passed finally to a different kind of psychiatrist, an older woman, a woman named McKenty, Mary McKenty. And Mary McKenty was sort of a flinty, tough, super smart, woman not to be messed with. I mean, she was not going to be impressed by John Money. She was going to be a good professional and look at what's in front of her. And what she sees in front of her is a very masculine, very unhappy girl who was, you know, with an XY chromosome, i.e. male chromosomal makeup, who had been, you know, um, intervened on in babyhood. And she's thinking this doesn't look at all like a success. She quickly, rapidly discovers that, you know, from suicidal ideation, ideas of suicide, Brenda has advanced to what looks like will will be suicide soon. So Mary realizes, okay, this, the case has now reached a critical point. I'm going to go to the parents and say to them, Scrooge on money, you have to tell this child the truth and see where they fall. Because this child needs to know that she's not crazy for her masculine feelings. She needs to know that there are reasons that she feels odd about her sexuality. David was actually going for annual visits to see John Money, where Money was, of course, in the teen years, trying to convince her to have that dildo implantation strapped in operation that I was talking about. And David was not, Brenda was not loving the sound of that, let me tell you, and was resisting all the way, driving John Money crazy because he was thinking, I got to get this done within a window of time where it will fully take root. Anyway, um, Mary McKenty said to the parents, you know, she's never going to do that. Trust me. You better tell her what happened. So the father took the, the reins and told her what had happened. And to his surprise, her response was relief. And David told me that his response was relief when he heard this because he realized, I'm not crazy. Mm. Now, Mary McKinty said, Who's, who knows what he'll want to do after this? But, it, you know, he may decide that he wants to switch back to being a male, dressing as a boy. You know, um, you probably will have to move away because how are you going to manage that socially with the people around? How are you going to explain any of this? This was long before the days of transsexual kids being out and, and, you know, accepted by society. Um, and it was interesting. I mean, they thought that David might take, or Brenda might take a long time to decide to do that. Within a couple of weeks, Brenda said, I'm living as a male. Might have even been faster than that. I mean, the imperatives of a biological drive to be who you are sexually, um, emotionally, in terms of your gender identity, in terms of your orientation, are really strong. That's what this case really told me. This was a kid that said, I have to live as a male in my society. I don't care how embarrassing it is. I don't care what I have to explain to people. He's actually, his twin brother was really embarrassed about it. Like, how are we going to go to school together? What are you doing? You can't do it. But he did it and he was accepted. The amazing thing about David, he, he decided to call himself David. He had to rename himself. He did that actually because of David and Goliath. He knew the David and Goliath story. He felt that he had been up against Goliath in the form of John Money and Johns Hopkins, this huge institution and, and psychologist that was trying to convince him to do this, and his local treatment team that was trying to convince him to do it, and frankly, his parents that were in on the on the lie. You know, he, had, he was victorious over all of them, so he thought he was David versus Goliath. So he called himself David. And, you know, it's fascinating. He... He, he, for all of the deep insecurity and depression that he displayed to me, the 
incredible psychic wounds that were absolutely on the surface through all of our interviews. He also possessed this kind of weird, unshakable confidence in himself. Um, and uh, that's all by way of saying that he fell in love, got a woman to, who had three kids from prior relationships. So he was able to sort of experience what it was like to be a father, which he desperately wanted to do. After a, you know, a great period of shyness, they were able to have a sex life. Um, you know, he actually had enough tissue um, flush with his body, uh, penile tissue with the n correct nerve endings that could be stimulated. Um, and he could actually ejaculate from his prostate, which creates the liquid that carries the, you know, the, um, the, the sperm that's made by the testicles. But he had no testicles, so this was empty ejaculate. But what I think is so painful to realize about that and the lovemaking that they would have where she could bring him to an ordinary climax, no, no big deal. You know, he was able to ejaculate if they hadn't castrated him. He could have had his own kids. Mm -hmm. You know, she could have been inseminated with this, this. And they knew this. I mean, they knew this at Johns Hopkins. They know how reproduction works. I mean, you know, they, they robbed him of this. And I, 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 I say that because I think one of the things that shocked me about this whole thing was the kind of godlike arrogance of the decision-making. Having said that, they did have a kid with a big, big problem on his hands. No penis. But this is one of the cases by which the medical establishment, we hope, has learned that there are better ways to deal with this particular calamity. Um, David, you know, is married and he's, and all this is going pretty well. I mean, he's a blue collar guy. He works in a slaughterhouse. He doesn't have a lot of money. He's raising these kids that way. He has periods of bleak, black darkness from visitations of his troubled childhood, but he's getting through life. He's, I think he's maybe 31, 32 years old. He gets a very surprising phone call from a, a psychologist based in Hawaii, of all places. Now, who is this person? Well, it's a man named Dr. Milton Diamond, who had been that Kansas graduate student, that upstart that had dared to challenge money all those years before about the psychosexual neutrality of newborns, the blank slate. He had been reading about the twins case, as it was called, famously by John Money. He'd been reading Money's Sunny Reports, and he had simply not been believing them. He had been in at the birth of the of kind of the earliest animal experiments that showed the biological hardwiring of gender and sex in, in animals and mammals, which we happen to be. And as he said to me, you know, I believed in evolution. I believe there's no reason we would be any different than other animals that had been tested. What actually masculinizes a baby is when they're in the womb. What creates the gender identity that we call male is that when that baby is floating around in the amniotic fluid, his own little testicles are, are sending out bursts of puberty-like testosterones. And those are literally in the fluid that the baby is floating in. And, and those are also going through the bloodstream. And what they actually literally do, those, fem those male hormones, are they actually masculinize the body. The human being is a default female. Every human being starts as a, a what looks exactly like a girl in the womb. There's no penis. There's no descended testicles. There's these things, ovaries. They're in the body, but they're not ovaries in males. They're testicles, and that's what gives out the burst of testosterone. So what I, what happens is it masculinizes the body. But as as Diamond and his fellow scientists discovered in these early animal experiments, it also masculinizes the nervous system and the brain. Certain brain centers 
are masculinized by this massive amount of testosterone that you're floating around in. Of course, there are anomalies of developmental of development of babies. Sometimes the brain centers don't masculinize. They they remain feminine in nature. The rest of the body masculinizes. What do we call those people? Homosexuals, gay dudes. You know, you you. It's I mean, this is all diamonds theorizing, but it seems sound to me that these things are hardwired. Sometimes you get quite unusual calamities where the body half masculinizes. You get a penis that's quite small, but then the puberty breasts develop. What's happening there is you've got a, a hermaphroditic situation where the brain is kind of half masculinized and still remains half feminine, which is probably what Money was just seeing in those early experiments he did where he discovered that intersex or hermaphrodite kids could go either way, as it were. It's not because they were psychosexual blank slates. It's because they had that potential within their brain hardwired at when they were in the womb with an ambiguous mental sexuality that exactly mirrored their ambiguous physical sexuality that they would have. This is all to say that Milton Diamond never believed that the twins case could have worked. He decides why has John Money, he thinks, why has John Money suddenly mysteriously stopped writing about this case? Money obviously knew it eventually failed. The mother, you know, in Winnipeg had phoned him and said, look, you know, she's becoming David. It didn't work. And Money was like, oh, I don't know why, even how Money got around that. I mean, he, <laughs> wonderful guy. He blamed the mother for having failed in the experiment. But in any case, um, Diamond decides I've got to find this unnamed patient in the medical literature. I need to know what happened. And I think he probably had a leak from the local treatment team in Winnipeg. He never would actually tell me because I think the person that told him about David, this failure of the experiment, um, didn't want ever to be named. Mm -hmm. But however it was that he found David, he found him. And in 1997, he published this kind of mind-blowing paper saying, hey, any of you that remember the twins case, the famous John Money twins case, which has affected yeah, the literature on gender identity, homosexuality, heterosexuality, uh, feminism, uh, I mean, you know, the endocrinology, you know, hormonal studies, all of the, this case had been written into textbooks on all of those fields of study. Uh, well, Diamond was there to tell everybody, hey, you know, it failed. And it failed from probably like from day one, and it was never a success. Um, and this was picked up by the New York Times. It was on the front page of the Times. And that's how I ended up finding out about it and writing about it in Rolling Stone magazine. Now, I don't know if you want me to follow right through to talk about David's ultimate fate. Um, uh, I can if you yes, want. Yes, it's a completely fascinating story. I might have been talking too much, but... Um, no, what ended up happening was, it's very interesting when Diamond's story appeared in the New York Times, it created an absolute feeding frenzy of journalists around the world to interview this child. In, in many ways, it was the ultimate tabloid story, the boy who was raised as a girl. Um, but it was also the sort of story that the New Yorker would want to cover. And sure enough, every journalist from the New Yorker to the bottom feeding tabloids and everyone in between wanted to cover it. And that was true of television shows as well. So you had print media and television and unit documentary filmmakers. This is all by way again of saying that Diamond was inundated with more journalistic phone calls than I think I've ever heard of anyone receiving. I mean, his phone just never stopped for a good 
two weeks or something. I was one of the people harassing him. I had been long enough in the journalism game at that point. I was almost 40. I knew that explosive stories like this, I'd never been in on one quite this explosive, but I knew that journalists try for about a week and then the next shiny object captures their attention and they run off after that. If they can't get the story when it's hot, they'll go, they'll go after the next thing. And it's kind of the way it has to be. I was very lucky. I was employed by a magazine, Rolling Stone magazine, that was, you know, just wonderfully committed to me getting this story. I spent six months communicating with Diamond. I never, you know, left him alone. We sent each other our, our writings. I satisfied him that I was not a fly-by-night guy that wanted to do a tabloid sensationalistic job. Um, I'd written science-based stories before. Um, Ultimately, he invited me to visit him in Hawaii. And it was really when I was there in Hawaii face to face that he really felt the trust. And he then divulged to me that the famous unnamed twin was someone named David Reimer, who still lived in his hometown of Winnipeg, which I, I didn't even know where he lived. I didn't even know if he was American or Canadian. I happened to be Canadian. So that was interesting to learn. Um, and it gave me, I guess, another level of comfort with David and, and, and because David, of course, had to okay being interviewed. So David was actually had flown to New York because all of this was blowing up and, and he had agreed to do a couple of television shows anonymously, darkened face, you know, lit so that you couldn't see his face, voice changed with a technological thing. So he had come to do these two. It was like, good morning, America. And I forget what the other one was. And it was while he was visiting New York that I met him. And David loved Rolling Stone magazine. So he agreed to do this story. And I did like a 25,000 word story, which is almost like the quarter of the length of a book in Rolling Stone. It won a national magazine award, which was wonderful and thrilling and, and flattering and exciting. And then I got a, a book deal to write a book I did not divulge David's name in the Rolling Stone story. Um, but for the book, I really did say to him, you know, because this is a nature nurture story, this at the heart of this is the whole question of the environment, who, how you were raised, where you were raised and so on. I said, you know, to try to keep you anonymous as like a young man living in a Midwestern or mid North American city isn't really gonna do it. And John Money is gonna jump down our throat saying, Oh, well, you know, the, they're leaving out all this stuff about his, the environment that screwed it up. You know, so I said, let's take all of it head on. If you can agree to this, let's use your name. And by then, actually, because he'd been getting all of this sympathetic reaction in the New York Times story. I mean, not him directly, but he heard that everybody was appalled by what had been done to this anonymous child. And from the TV shows, he decided to go with his real name. Um that ends up being somewhat relevant, I guess, because um, doing the book was terribly frightening. I mean, I've mentioned that he was suicidal from his early um, childhood through his teens. And, and he had these bleak moments of, oh, in fact, he'd had a couple of suicide attempts while married to Jane, his wife, actually. He just sort of would go into a pit of despair. Uh, one time she actually found him trying to gas himself in his car. I mean, it was, it was extraordinary. So I'm you know, not a professional psychiatrist. I'm interviewing him at length about this life of his. Mm. Um, I'm going to expose his real name. It was all very, very frightening. Uh, really not knowing, first of all, if the interviews were going to plunge him into some kind of despair. 
Sometimes they did. Interestingly, they were mostly helpful. He had never been willing to see a psychiatrist ever since those childhood years of seeing his local treatment team, these horrible experiences of being browbeaten into believing he's a girl and those horrifying trips to Johns Hopkins, he developed naturally a real fear and hatred and loathing of the psychiatrist figure. So as an adult, when he really could have used some sympathetic good therapy, he was not getting it. Here's a journalist sitting, interviewing for hours on end, night after night, and he actually kind of loved it. And his wife said to me, this is actually good for him. So I was like, oh, thank God. And I was phoning my wife back in New York saying, oh my God, he's not plunging into suicidal despair. The book came out with him named and, um, and then lo and behold, everybody in his hometown was like, oh my God, David, I can't believe you went through that. We didn't know this had happened to you. I guess what I'm saying is he received all this positive reinforcement around this terrible calamity of his life comes to New York to do more press now with his face shown. People are saying, oh, he does, goes on Oprah Winfrey's show. People are saying, oh, you're a hero, man. So it's all wonderful and good. I got a significant advance for the book, i.e. an amount of money, which um, I shared with him 50-50. It seemed like the only way to do it. You, you, you know, I, I, you, you just couldn't, this guy had been exploited his whole life. Mm -hmm. I thought, I don't want to be in, you know, one of those. And he was very, very happy with that. It was great. Um, we got a movie deal, shared it with him again, 50-50. I guess what I'm saying is all, everything was coming up roses. And then, you know, it's interesting. The book came out in 2000. You know, a, a couple of years go by and the story fades from the headlines. David is then still at home. Um, he made some bad investments with the money. He was not a financial wizard by any stretch. You know, some bad stuff happened there. He hits a couple of rocky times with his wife. No one's around calling him a hero anymore. And things get darker and darker. And it was very scary. And I was getting calls from him. I was getting calls from his wife. And, you know, it was just very scary. And I, I guess I'll just get to it. The straw that breaks the camel's back for David is the thing that I knew if it ever happened, it was going to be curtains. His wife said, we have to separate. She couldn't take his explosive periods of rage. She couldn't take his, he actually had a lot of issues still around his, his penis, his lack of a penis, you know, his jealous, his fear that she would find a man that was intact and so on. And he would go into these rages about that. Um, so when I, I guess it was 2004, when I got a call from David's father, I will proceed that with one other detail. I've left out of this, as always happened seemingly in the story, was the twin brother, Brian. Yeah. Just as I've not talked about here, Brian was totally overlooked in life. He was overlooked by John Money. He was overlooked by his parents. He was overlooked by the school system and the, the local treatment team because Brian was fine. Nothing wrong with Brian. You know, all the attention was on David. Brian was an amazing person to interview. I mean, it was extraordinary just physically to see him, to see someone that had experienced a normal male puberty so that he had masculinized fully in his frame and face and figure. So he was a big strapping guy. And, and in his early 30s, he was starting to put on a lot of weight. He drank a lot of beer. He ate, he was a blue collar worker. He ate a lot of food to build his muscle for this heavy work. So he was a big, strong guy. David, on the other hand, interestingly, 
you know, had not had the same degree of masculinization or anything like it at puberty. He was also a more nervous person and he was very, very delicate and thin. He had, he looked a bit like the young Johnny Depp, actually, mm -hmm. when we were thinking about the early movie days of it, the young Johnny Depp would have been perfect, had an androgynous, very, actually rather beautiful face. Um, but it was very interesting to interview Brian because I could see at the center of Brian's rather large face, David's face, exactly the identical twin. They were just there. But Brian had a tale of woe as well, totally ignored, um, bullied because of his weird sister. Oh, you got that weird sister, that tomboy sister, man. He was often trying to protect, you know, defend David. I mean, David could defend him. Brenda could defend herself. She actually would beat Brian up. Well, what ends up happening to Brian after this huge explosion of publicity and trips to New York for David and the Oprah Winfrey show, which actually Brian came along and he was on that as well, but he was never the center of attention. He also suffered from depressions. They had a certain amount of it from their mother who had actually been depressive. So you get the genetic influence as well with the environmental bolstering of this terrible life. This is all by way of saying that Brian dies of a drug and alcohol overdose in 2003. So that precedes what I'm about to tell you happens to David. So I first learn that Brian has died. And I think, oh, how is David gonna handle this? They had that mystical connection of identical twins. They had that mysterious thing. They finished each other's sentences. They were often feuding. There was a lot of rivalry and, and jealousy. You've got a penis and I don't. You got all the attention and I didn't. So you had this back and forth, very interesting psychological warfare, but they loved each other deeply and they were in, you know, umbilically connected. Brian dies. I think, oh, I can't believe David's going to be able to weather this. I just don't believe it. And then, you know, in David's meltdown around that, and it was largely, you know, uh, triggered by that, his wife separates. She didn't leave him permanently. She, she said, we've got to separate for a while. He couldn't even take a separation. He acquired a shotgun. I don't know from where. Uh, he sawed it off. I don't know why. He drove with it in his car to a local um, big box store. I forget which one. Parked in the large parking area and shot himself in the head. He killed himself. Um, his dad told me this and it was just, you know, it was, it was both, it was surprising, but not at all shocking or shocking, but not at all surprising. It was shocking to hear someone that I had gotten to know so well, uh, felt such empathy with had died in this horrible way, but could I claim to have been surprised? No, I had been reading his, literally his psychological reports going back to the age of four five and six, where they were saying this child's thinking about suicide. So that's how David's story wraps up, I'm afraid. Yeah. May I ask, um, did you, were you harassed by John Money at all when you were writing the book or after the book was published? He did not try to make contact with me directly. What he did do was he wrote papers that he published. By then he was kind of, he was quite an old man. And actually Johns Hopkins had already um, kind of pushed him off the, out of the, the, the institution onto like an off uh, campus kind of place. They thought they began to realize this guy's trouble. You know, one way or another, he's going to get us in trouble. He was a controversialist. 
So money was not being published in good journals, but he was finding places that would publish him. And that's where money attacked me as a mercenary guy that was just trying to make money. I was a typical New York journalist that was doing this very predictable skeezy thing of jumping on a story that was um, uh, sensationalistic and attacking a great man. And it was rather predictable. Money would not be interviewed by me when I was doing the Rolling Stone story until actually at the very end, we were in the fact-checking process. And I made one last attempt. And I actually told his assistant, look, I mean, I'm fact-checking if there's any way he could get on the phone. And he did come on the phone and he defended, he defended his view of the case. And here, and in this respect, I will give John money, um, you know, the benefit of the doubt in this respect Scientists, journalists for that matter, human beings universally can be blinded by what they, what they want to see, or I should say they'll, they'll see what they want to see. If you've made the commitment as a, as a uh, psychologist to have this child, you know, sex reassigned in infancy, you, you're hugely invested for so many reasons in it working out. And again, to be fair to money, very interestingly, if you look at his papers saying that the experiment worked, he does not claim that she's a feminine presence in his room. You know, he calls her a tomboy, you know, so he's at least willing to admit, okay, there are some definite, you know, what we call masculine behaviors here. Um, so he's trying to that extent to be honest and objective. I mean, people often ask me, do you think money was an out and out fraud? Was this an out and out hoax and lie? I think in the early years, he was seeing what he didn't, you know, he was seeing what he wanted to see. I think by the time he's brushing it under the rug, it's now failed and he knows it has failed and he's not reporting that it has failed. That is a huge sin of omission. You know, he really was obliged at that point to let the scientific community know and let them make of it what they will. Um, but he did not. He never reported it. I mean, it literally took Diamond many, many years, 15 years or more after the failure of this experiment to report that it did not work. And I think that's really where money was really, really uh, you know, guilty of a scientific sin. And, you know, the puzzling thing of, the, of many kind of puzzling things about John Money's career, he is the most extraordinary villain. I really want someone to write a biography of him. Actually, I want to write a biography of him myself. Yeah, he's like, yeah. You would think that the fact that people are trans would suggest that some people cannot come to terms with the body as it is, that people's felt sense of themselves and of their gender can be stronger than the external bodily appearance that they have. So you would think that that would be an argument against the infinite malleability of children with damaged or indeterminate genitals. And he seemed to interpret it in exactly the opposite way. And I can't help feeling perhaps mostly because he was just a massive 
narcissist and megalomaniac. And he really felt that he erred always from quite early on on the side of intervention, on the side of the doctors and psychiatrists being able to make the decision and if not make this decision, at least turn the person into whatever they had decided to turn them into. That what was important was being able to do these medical experiments and show kind of what you could do to a person, how you could transform a person. Yes. You put your finger on something very interesting, which is, you know, what you're saying about the body itself. As you point out, money believed that environment was all in telling someone if they were a boy or a girl. And as you're pointing out, if you look down and you see a penis or you see a vagina, I mean, that's part of your environment. That's a very intimate part of your of your of the nurture that is telling you what your sex is. So I guess you're saying, you know, if the person's got what looks like in every way a male's body, that's an environmental element that is somehow being overridden. You know, he had so thoroughly convinced himself that it was all influence from the environment that when a writer like James Morris becomes Jan Morris, um, you know, it's simply something in their environment that did it. I mean, you would imagine it would have to be something fairly drastic in their environment. He was never able to say what it was, mm-hmm. but he was, he was dead. He never changed his view. Yeah, I'm good. I'm going to give a slight spoiler to the book, but um, I, I hope people read the book anyway. I think they will because this topic is perennially fascinating and it's become newly relevant recently um, or continues to be relevant because of the trans debate. And I want to get onto that in a moment. But um, John Money began his career as a PhD student studying intersex children. And he noted that despite what he had assumed, Um, children who are growing up with ambiguous looking genitalia because they were intersex were, he reported, psychologically um, healthy and psychosexually healthy. Um, And it was perfectly fine to wait until the age of consent to decide whether or not to operate on their genitals. There was no necessity to normalize the intersex genitals in infancy. And he later seemed to do a complete 180 on this and believe it was very important to normalize them and assign them to a sex, one sex or the other, usually to the female sex, just because it's easier to construct um, a vagina. Um, as you said, it's it, it's still impossible to make a properly functioning penis. Um, I have seen the penises that they um, give to intersex, to, sorry, to... Um, female to male transsexuals and they're it's medieval still so mostly they were assigned to female sex if there was any ambiguity there and um he argued that was very important to do that early on and again it feels to me as though his main concern was to prove what science can do to prove how much we have medical options to be able to decide how to allocate a person Um, that it was a kind of heroic battle between man and nature and he felt that man would win and of course (laughs) um, nature won (laughs) so i wonder how you feel about 
how you feel this story relates to the recent phenomenon, which I know many people are concerned about, which is the the quite large numbers of girls. It's now about four times as many girls as boys who are transitioning in adolescence or pre-adolescence with puberty blockers and social transition name changes. And then most of those who go on to puberty blockers are going on to sex reassignment surgeries, double mastectomies, etc. later on. And uh, so there is now, a, it's still a small number, of course, in absolute terms. So there's a much larger number of natal women who are transitioning to become males and aren't, in effect, living as males without fully functioning penises or sometimes without bottom surgery at all. And there's a very ferocious argument between those who believe that uh, these um, girls have a strong felt sense of themselves as male and would therefore be very unhappy in female bodies, and those who believe that this is at least partially a trend, a form of social contagion, and we know teen girls are really susceptible to social contagions of all kinds. Where do you stand in this debate, and do you feel that David Reimer's story sheds light on it in in either direction? I'm interested to know. I don't have a I don't have a horse in this race, really. Um, our, our, our listeners and viewers will have the interesting experience of seeing me figure this out on the fly. You know, <laughs> Sorry. in the early. Um, publicity tours for the book 20 years ago, this was not a question that came up naturally. So this is something that sort of, I have been writing other things. Um, and now, you know, as, as I come back into As Nature Made Him and its implications in David's story and what they tell us, it's a very different world now to everything that you just said about this remarkable phenomenon of young girls mostly deciding they want to transition in in their teen years. And I mean, doing these rather dramatic things like puberty blockers, extraordinary. Um, Well, it's funny because I have to say that my book, I have to feel, uh, I mean, I sometimes feel it was part of what I don't think the book was wide enough. I mean, it was widely read, but I'm sort of being a little facetious when I say that my book may have been part of what made, you know, this environment such that um, parents and doctors feel like it's a it's an okay thing to listen to a teenager who is troubled and says she feels like she or he is in the wrong sex, because it's an argument I make very strongly in As Nature Made Him that. You should not intervene on a baby, as was done to David, because they really can't say anything. But when you get to teen years, there are certain imperatives of puberty and that incredible hormonal thing that happens to human beings. I mean, it's really how the species happens to still be alive. I mean, it propagates itself on this incredible drive to have sex and reproduce. So as Darwin would have told us if he was sitting here, um, that's gonna be one of the strongest things that any organism can feel, the desire to reproduce, Um, which then presupposes how that organism feels itself um, to be within the reproductive um, uh, pairing. You know, are you the male of the species? Are you the female species? Those are gonna be strong feelings is what I'm struggling to say. And my argument in As Nature Made Him was, David shows us that don't intervene on them as babies, but when they get to 14, 15, 
And they are starting to become openly suicidal, as David was, around feeling like he was in the wrong sex. Let's, let's wait till then to listen to them. And furthermore, I think the argument, I don't think I explicitly say this, but it was implicit in the book was, you know, let's listen to them and also let's notice how imperative it really is. It's so imperative that a little girl or teenage girl would be willing to suddenly step out the next day as a boy, Brenda to David, within a day, suddenly wearing a suit in a relatively small city with a hidebound, conventional kind of religious flavor to it where the ridicule and the social ostracization could have been that much more dramatic. But but so determined was she to live as a he that he would do this dramatic thing. So this is all by way of saying my book would seem to argue that today's young women or young men that are claiming at 14, I'm living in the wrong sex, should be listened to you know, should be intervened. They should be allowed to take the puberty blocks. But of course, I mean, you've, you've, you, you know, you've pointed out that teenagers are famously susceptible to contagions. When you look at the fact that it's young, I mean, really, why would it be mostly young women? I mean, you certainly got an argument in the United States. I don't know if I can speak for elsewhere, but where women's reproductive rights have just been ripped away from them by the Supreme Court, you know, uh, their, their abortion rights, their control over their own body. The notion that women might be second-class citizens in, in Western culture, you know, it, you know, it's not a huge leap to suggest it. Let's face it. Um, even with all of the strides that have been made. So if girls are, are, are making a calculus at the age of 14 in, um, in the world that uh, maybe it's better to be a dude, maybe it's better to be a guy. Mm. Is that a huge surprise? Yeah, I'm skeptical that that's what's going on, um, I think, um, but mm. it could, could be an element definitely I should have prefaced everything I said just now by saying that I have not done my due diligence as a journalist. Like, in other words, I have not gone out and actually spoken to children that are, that are undergoing this right now. I have not spoken to the therapists that treat them and the doctors and so on and the endocrinologists that prescribe them the drugs and so on. Um, and, and maybe exposing myself to that whole situation, I would have a, a kind of an, a strong emotional view that the maybe I would be won over to this idea that that uh, that it's a, a great idea. Um, but no, I mean, I've been out of the, the this particular topic since I did as nature made him. And I guess I mean, oh, let me stop being such a coward and just say, you know, I, <laughs> I, I, I'm skeptical and worried, you know, and I understand people's concern around this issue right now, which, which is, you know, but, and I feel bad saying it because I wrote sort of the ultimate book about a teenager desperately struggling to live in the sex that he felt himself to be. And I was so moved and shaken by what that kind of, mm. I was, I guess I was brought so intensely into what the mental and psychosexual torture feels like mm -hmm. of not being able to express that fundamental aspect of our identity. It's the fundamental building block, whether we like it or not, whether or not we feel like we're boys or girls. Um, 
to say nothing of sexual orientation, that incredible drive, that procreative drive. Um, you know, in David's story, all of that was so painfully strong. And I, I came away feeling like, boy, I think we have to be empathetic. We have to listen closely to people that say that they're trans, trans. You know, David was not trans, obviously, in that he was developmentally normal and then lost his penis and had this mm-hmm. sex change um, to something that was contrary to his hormonal makeup. But he was trans in, in, in virtually every other way. Mm-hmm. He was living socially as a girl, believed himself to be one because he was told he was, was named Brenda, but felt himself internally to be male. If the girls that we're talking about in today's world are as adamantly being driven towards maleness by their biology. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess I put biology over all else, mm-hmm. I suppose. Maybe that's bad of me. Um, uh, then, then, then I guess I, I would say, well, I guess maybe the whole puberty blocker thing is okay, but I, I'm just not prepared to go there yet. I have not done my due diligence. I just know it sounds like a bit of a mess. Thank you. We have to wrap up now. I I feel that it's ironic that you of all people are saying that you feel you haven't done your due diligence as a journalist because uh, this is one of the most striking. I've just read one of the most striking examples of due diligence in a book that I've ever encountered. The book is absolutely um, fascinating. Um, there's a lot of stuff we haven't covered here, particularly on John Money. It was kind of my favorite parts of the book were hating John Money, and uh, he is absolutely a fascinating character. It's also very moving um, and beautifully written, um, and I would highly recommend everybody goes and reads As Nature Made Him, and it's remained very relevant today um, and raises a lot of questions that we're still struggling with. Um, Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Really fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Quillette podcast. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. If you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so by going to quillette.com and becoming a paid subscriber. This subscription will also give you access to all our articles and early access to Quillette social events. 